Well, good morning again, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Welcome back to Community Church. Hope you had a great week. I hope that you had a very Merry Christmas and that you're looking forward to a, a great and happy New Year. That's for sure. Well, last Sunday, if you were with us, we celebrated Christmas together and we talked about the incarnate Christ. That was our lesson from last week. But then this past Wednesday, we gathered again as a church and we looked back on the year of 2023 during our annual night of remembrance that's what we call that this would be our third night of remembrance already imagine that but this is just the night of the year where we get together between christmas and new years and we share testimonies about the past year we talk about all of the good things that the lord has done we share communion together we worship together it's just a beautiful night of worship um, all around really as we remember the blessings of Christ from the previous year. But this morning, we're going to turn the page and we're going to begin to look forward, not merely to the calendar year ahead or even to the future of Community Church, but we're going to be looking forward to the hope for the future that belongs to every single believer in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll get back into our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, where we're going to be looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, if you'd like to read ahead. That'll be in Acts chapter 2. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, then go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we're going to be this morning, and we're going to be looking at all 11 verses in our study this morning. But first, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into his word. Lord, we love you. Thank you again for this morning that you've given to us. We are on the precipice of a brand new year. We thank you for all that you've done in this past year, and we look forward to all that you're going to do in the year to come. We are thankful, Lord, that you have placed us here during this time, in this very place, gathered us together, these very specific people in a very specific place to accomplish your will. Thank you for that. Lord, we're excited about what 2024 holds for us, and we just pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. We are your church. We are your people. And we pray that you would use us for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Psalm chapter 16, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. So just a few observations here quickly about Psalm 16 before we look at each verse. 
Here we see that David is the author of this psalm. He's not the author of every psalm, but he is of this one in particular. We see that indicated in the title. And so if you're reading through the psalms, you're going to see titles and you're going to see headings. The titles are inspired. The headings are not. Okay, so the title is inspired scripture. The title reads that this psalm is a mictum of David. So what in the world is mictum? You guys probably don't use that word very often like me. I don't catch myself using that word very often. This is actually the first time you're going to see that word in the book of Psalms. It's unique to the book of Psalms. You won't see it anywhere else in the scriptures. So it's, it's sort of like that word selah. You've seen that as you've read through the scriptures. That word selah means to pause and think. And so if you're reading through a psalm and it says selah, it's telling you to pause and think about what you just read. So that word selah is unique to the book of Psalms. Mictum is unique to the book of Psalms. We see it here in Psalm 16, but we also see it in Psalms 56 through 60. So what does it mean? Well, there's a lot of thoughts on that, and I'm not going to go into great detail this morning. I did teach through this psalm years ago. It's on our podcast if you would like to go check that out. and I go into greater detail on what is a mictum. Uh, but the best definition I can give you here this morning is I do not know. I don't know. Most people don't. Now, there are, again, opinions out there. I'm not going to go into all of that um, because the the opinions are are everywhere. But with the benefit of New Testament revelation here, I think we can see for sure that Psalm 16 is a poem or a mictum that is about Christ. There's no doubt about that. We see this because Peter actually quoted from this psalm at Pentecost, and he referenced Christ when he quoted from this psalm. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31. We know that Paul, he certainly knew that this psalm was about Christ as well. He quoted from Psalm 16 when he was at Antioch, and he referenced Christ when he did it. That's Acts 13, 35. And so this would make Psalm 16 what we know as a messianic psalm. So what's that? What is a messianic psalm? Good question. And how do we know whether or not a psalm is messianic or not? Well, the first thing we need to look at in regard to that is, does the psalm make reference specifically to the Messiah? That's step one. If a psalm makes reference to the Messiah, that's your first clue. This one does. And that means that there will be specific prophecies in regard to the Messiah just like we see here in verses 8 through 11 in Psalm 16. The second thing we want to look for in determining a messianic psalm is whether or not it has been quoted in the New Testament in reference to Christ. And of course, I just gave you a couple of examples of that happening with Psalm 16. So Psalm 16 is in fact a messianic psalm. There is some debate about this too, but there are about 20 total messianic psalms, and I have a list of them here if you'd like them. I can give them to you after the message. But as I've said many times, whether you're studying Scripture, but in particular, if you're studying the Psalms, always be on the lookout for Christ, okay? Because Christ is everywhere. The entirety of Scripture is about Christ and points us to Christ. And so be on the lookout for the Lord as you study the Scripture, again, in particular, the Psalm. But I will say this, the context here of Psalm 16 uh, could be, I don't, I don't know if you have a heading in your Bible or not. Uh, some Bibles have them, others don't. This version I'm reading out of this morning is the New King James. It has a heading on it that reads, The Hope of the Faithful. Again, that's not inspired. That was put in there by other people. It also says uh, it could be the Messiah's victory. And that's another heading. But what I prefer to do here is I read through the psalm. I think a combination of those two ideas is, 
fits best for the theme of this psalm or for the context. Um, So I would combine them and say that Psalm 16 is about the hope for the future. Because in it, what we see is that believers have hope, eternal hope in the resurrected Christ. Now, we learned last week from John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as received him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, right? So had Christ not risen from the dead, had he stayed in the grave, then none of us would have any hope whatsoever at all. So the Holy Spirit here, I love this part, has inspired David to go ahead and prophesy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ somewhere between 500 and 1,500 years before it actually happened. And then it happened, right? So this is much like what we read last week, how Isaiah prophesied about the birth of Christ some 700 years before it happened, and then it happened. So I think this morning we do have hope as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We have eternal hope um, that because Christ has risen from the dead, we will also rise from the dead in Christ. And so I hope this morning this psalm gives you comfort. I hope that it does give you hope for the future, not just tomorrow or the next day, but actually eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come, yes, conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, but he's also coming again because he is risen and lives today forevermore. So this psalm offers a great deal of hope, no doubt about that. So here we go, starting in verse 1. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. I love this verse. I want you to notice something here. Look at the settled faith in verse 1. Did you see that? David is counting fully on God for his future preservation. He's counting fully upon this. This speaks to the security that we have as believers. It speaks to the assurance that we have as people who have trusted in God because God will preserve you. God will preserve me. Many today have um, begun talking about this doctrine of the perseverance, or perseverance, I'm sorry, perseverance of the saints. And it's not a new doctrine. It's been around for a long time and it sort of comes and goes, but it's become more and more popular to talk about the perseverance of the saints, um, which means that if someone is truly born again, then they will preserve all the way to the end. They will be faithful all the way to the end, meaning death. A word here on that. I believe a more biblical way to express the security that we have in Christ would be to say that God will preserve me, not necessarily that I will persevere to the end. Think about it like this. What do we do with the gentleman in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, who Paul instructed the church to cast out of the body because he was in sin? He told the church to cast them out for the destruction of the flesh, but that his soul might be saved. That doesn't sound like perseverance. It doesn't sound like he persevered to the end. But what it does sound like is that God preserved him. God preserves his people. David says this here in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Another example is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, being confident of this very thing. Paul is confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what he's saying is what God starts, he will finish. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. If God has saved you, he will complete your salvation. Salvation is a work of God. He will preserve me. Now, I understand how some people can be like, you know, I, I, I don't I can't go with you on this eternal security thing. You know, it's a, it seems like a hard pill to swallow. I mean, to me, it just seems like if you believe that way, you're just giving yourself a license to sin. Right. You're saying if God is going to preserve you, then you can believe in him and then go on and live whichever way you want. And it won't matter one bit in eternity. Well, to those who are in that camp, I would say this. I'm not sure that you have an accurate understanding of grace if you take that opinion, Uh, because I think Scripture is very clear in regard to the security that we have in Christ. Let me give you an example. On Monday nights, the men, some of us men, are going through a book by Pastor Chuck Smith called Why Grace Changes Everything. And that's been a really rich study. And so I would encourage you guys to come out to that. But one of the things that Pastor Chuck said in his book He said this, he said, what's difficult to grasp is that although my behavior is wrong, it has nothing to do with my standing before God. Think about that. To that, I say amen. Not every believer would say amen to that, but I do. I agree. Look, I have no hope for the future, much less heaven. If any part of my salvation is dependent upon my own righteousness, or my own so-called good works. If any of it depends on me, I am without hope. 100%. Guys, this is why I'm so thankful for the staggering amount of Scripture that we have that tells us that God preserves His children, that God saves and God keeps us saved. It's all over the Bible, and I'm so thankful for that because this helps us to understand grace. Grace is not a license to sin. It tells me who I am in light of who God is, right? But it also tells me that none of my salvation is dependent upon my good works because none of my works are good. The only work that was ever good came from Jesus Christ. And without him, I have no hope whatsoever. Let me illustrate it another way for you. And I've used this illustration before. I know I've used it on Monday nights. I've probably used it from the pulpit. I apologize. Preachers get like that. We reuse, and hopefully I'm not overusing this illustration, but I think it's, it's poignant, so I'm going to use it today. There was a time years ago when I was having a conversation with my grandma, who is now with the Lord, but we were all sitting around the kitchen table one night, and we were talking about the Bible, and this topic of eternal security came up. And I gave her my opinion on that based on what I knew from Scripture, which wasn't a ton, but I had been reading the Bible, and so I told her my thoughts on that. And she looked at me, and she said... You mean to tell me that you believe that once a person has been saved, they can never be lost again? And I said, yeah, Grandma, I believe that. Not just because I want to, because I believe that's what the Bible says, right? And she looked at me and she said, boy, I'd be scared if I was you. Now, I don't know if that's because she knew me pretty good. Like, (laughs) if anybody can blow it, you can, brother. But I don't know why she said that. But, uh, you know, I just said, Grandma, I just can't imagine me getting to heaven one day and looking at Christ and saying, congratulations, Jesus, we did it. No, we didn't do anything. Jesus has done everything, everything that is needed to secure my eternity 
forever, right? So guys, the Lord is strong enough to save and he is strong enough to keep me saved. David said, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. That's important because we all put our trust somewhere, don't we? Some people put their trust in money. If I get enough of it, that'll give me the security I need. Some people put their trust in their ability. If I'm talented enough in an area, then that will give me security. Some people put their trust in chance. Maybe if I just go down to the grocery store or the convenience store and buy one more lotto ticket, that'll give me all the security I need. But David declares right here that he puts his trust in the Lord. Something else I want to point out here is that faith isn't faith until it's put somewhere. Did you see that? For in you, I put my trust, David said. Again, we've talked about this. Head knowledge is not faith. Head knowledge is not faith. A right understanding of something is not trust. Not at all. Listen to what John Trapp said. He's an old Anglican theologian from the 1600s. But he said this, this was a most powerful plea. For to trust God is the highest honor we can do him. It is to set the crown upon his head. Amen. Where it belongs, right? So both surrender and submission are intimated here in these words from David. He says, to put my trust in God is to acknowledge that he is the king and I am merely the subject. That's all, right? Christ is the boss. I'm the employee. He is above me, and so I'm going to now live my life in complete submission to him and in complete reliance upon him. It's to say to the Lord, I'm all in. This is putting my trust in you. Lord, I am dependent upon you for everything in my life, all of it, right? You are God. You are my Lord. And so as best I can as I trust you, and I trust you alone, I put all of my faith in Jesus I'm going to follow you as best I can according to your will and according to your word for the rest of my life. This is the essence of what David is saying. Verse two, oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Amen. I love this verse. Guys, it's one thing to have a peace of mind, right? But it is another thing entirely to have your soul settled in Christ Jesus as your Lord. This speaks to resolve. This is resolve here. David is saying, my soul has resolved to trust in God. My soul has resolved to be settled, to be at peace in Christ. It doesn't wander anymore. It's not out there looking for other gods. No, it is settled in Christ. I'm not out there searching for another way or a lesser God, as we're going to see when we get to verse 4. But it says with complete assurance, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. You know, every true believer that I know, every single one of them knows at least two things. And here they are. The first thing every true believer in Jesus knows is how good God is. Every true believer knows the goodness of God. The second thing every true believer knows is how sinful they are. They know the goodness of God and they understand their own sinfulness. Our goodness, as David says, is nothing apart from God. I like what Wearsby said. He said, you have taken a giant step toward true Christian maturity when you can say to the Lord and mean it, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Can I say that? Can I say it this morning with a true heart? Can I mean that from the heart? 
David's soul has been settled here. We see that, right? He's made the decision as to where he's going to put his trust. There's no more struggle. There's no more debate in David's heart at all. No more looking around for other meaningless things in order to provide him satisfaction. David simply declares by faith, you are my Lord. Very personal. You are my Lord. I hope that you can say that this morning. I hope that all of us can say that this morning. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, how does it feel to you to have one of your children look up at you and say, you're my daddy or you're my mommy? How does that make you feel? Now, we have a lot of young families in our church with a lot of little kiddos running around. How does that feel as a parent to have your young child look up at you and say, you're my daddy or I love you, daddy. I love you mommy kind of makes your chest poke out a little bit doesn't it it feels pretty good you see because when the child looks to their parent like that and makes a statement like that here's what's happening they're not only stating a fact they're confirming a truth in their own heart that's what they're doing right they're saying to their own soul you're my dad you're my mom i know you're going to take care of me i'm trusting you for that Right? You will take care of me. So David is saying, rest easy, soul. You don't have to wander anymore. You can settle down in the truth that Christ is Lord, that you are my God. I've put my trust in you and you are good. Verse three, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And so those folks who have settled their soul in Christ, they also delight in his people. Interesting. Matthew Henry said, when we take God for our God, then we also take his people for our people. (laughs) That's so true. But too many Christians, unfortunately today, want to receive God but reject his people. Right? I love you, Jesus. I just don't like your people very much. Right? No. David says, the saints... The saints are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So we should enjoy being around other believers. We should enjoy the family of God. Here's the deal. Even if they drive us crazy. Even if we don't, you know, exactly click. Even if we don't get along perfectly with every single one of them. They're saints. They're children of God. And we have been called to fellowship and live our life among them and with them, right? The Bible calls them saints. The Bible also calls the children of God excellent, not perfect, excellent. So we need to be around each other. We need to congregate, don't we? I mean, if God talks about his people like this, how dare we say anything different about them or refuse to fellowship with them. Oh, I love God. I believe in God. I just don't, I don't like the church. I've, been, I've got church hurt. I've been burned, yada, yada, yada. There's 1,000 stories we could tell this morning, and all of us have them. It does not excuse us from coming to church. It does not excuse us from being the church, the family of God, the saints, the excellent ones, right? Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. It says this, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. I don't know how to misinterpret that. I don't know how we could ever misunderstand that. Let me read it again. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this command we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. We are commanded as the people of God to love each other. Other children of God, we should love well. Guys, there's no, out, there's no way out of this, as far as I can tell. Like, there's no loophole here. If I claim Christ as my Savior, then I need to learn to love his people. If I claim Christ as my Savior, then I need to learn to love being around his people. That's the bottom line. That's just Bible. James Montgomery Boyce said this. He's the former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said this. This is a practical matter. For it's a way by which we can measure our relationship to the Lord. Do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? He said it's a simple test. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right. Guys, the litmus test for my love for God is my love for other Christians. Do I love God? I can easily tell by looking at my life to see how well I love his people. How much I love God is going to be reflected in how I love his people. Verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Now, okay, so those who do not have their soul settled in Christ here, okay, what do they do? They hasten after other gods. What's the result of that? Multiplied sorrows. Sorrow after sorrow after sorrow, one after the other. You cannot find true satisfaction for your soul apart from the God of the Bible. Your soul will not be settled apart from being settled in Christ. Here's something else to consider. If I'm currently choosing my own will over the will of God, then guess what? I am the other God I'm chasing after. Does that make sense? These people David's talking about, they're chasing after other gods. Well, what if I'm that God I'm chasing after? Do I submit to my will? Or do I submit to God's will? If I'm constantly submitting to my own will, my own wants, my own desires, etc., then guess who that other God is I'm chasing? Me. It's me. We cannot allow ourselves to become an idol. Right? Our culture is going to tell you to please yourself. Right? We live in the selfie generation. Everything's about me, myself, and I. What can I do to please myself? What can I do to get myself out there, to promote myself, etc., etc.? You see it everywhere. But that's not Bible. The Bible says that we are to be God-pleasers, not man-pleasers. That's what Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Romans 8.8. 8. I mean, what a pitiful and heartless life when it's lived out for my own pleasure. How shallow is that? Extremely shallow. It's extremely selfish. David continues, he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. I will not do it, he says. In other words, so what David is doing here is he says, I'm not going to adhere to these pagan rituals around me that are out there and prevalent in my culture. I'm not going to be a part of that. John Trapp said, many heathens sacrificed to their idols, that is devils, with man's blood against all laws of humanity and piety. That's right. It was, it was common practice back in the day. In fact, Pastor Guzik takes it a step further, and he says, in addition, the priests of Baal offered their own blood to their false god. Some Roman Catholics 
and some Muslims also whip themselves to blood, offering their blood to their twisted conception of God. Can you believe that? Where's grace in that? Where is the grace of God in all of that? It's not there. But unfortunately, many pagan ideas of worship have found their way into Christianity over the years. Very unfortunate. We see it in less extreme ways today through things like asceticism, which is basically just self-deprivation. We see people still taking vows of poverty, for example, among other unbiblical behaviors. Guys, that's works. That's not grace. Okay, It's saying there's something I can do to please God. There's something that I can do works-wise in order to earn favor with God. It's works. It's not grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it, but Christ has given it to me anyway. I can never work for it, earn it, or keep it. Christ gives it to me. It's a gift. But when we bring in all these pagan rituals, now we're attaching works to our salvation, and that's not good. That's not biblical whatsoever. So we need to let this serve as a warning to not let any more pagan ideas become a part of our own worship. In fact, David takes it a step further and says, I'm not even going to take their name on my lips. I love that. I'm not even going to take up their name on my lips. Christians get in a bad habit sometimes of talking about how terrible things are. <laughs> you ever notice that? Oh, the world's terrible. Everything's terrible. Our government's terrible. President's terrible. Everything's terrible. We have a, it's just, we get in this terrible mindset, don't we? How about this? How about if we didn't even take their name on our lips? What if we didn't even bring it up at all? Guys, there's some things that are just not even worth mentioning. I wonder how many words I've wasted just talking about worldly pagan things. How many words have I wasted? Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 7. For my mouth shall speak truth. That's what my mouth is there for, to speak truth. And wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So if I'm even talking about wickedness, now I'm, I've got an abomination to my lips. We need to be careful. I think here's the deal. We only have so many words that we're going to speak in our lifetime. Okay, We have a certain number of words that we're going to speak in our lifetime. In fact, I was doing sermon prep for a message I uh, taught a few years ago. And I'm going to probably get the numbers off a bit. But I, I think it was somewhere around... 6,500 to maybe 7,500 words a day is what a typical man speaks. And so by the time I get through with this sermon, I'll have spoken most of my words, right? There's only going to be a few left. But for a woman, it's something like 10 million or something. I, I, may have that. <laughs> I may have that off just a little bit. I'm not sure. But we only have so many words that we're going to speak, right? So we got to be careful which ones we let roll off of our lips. That's the point I'm making. Verse 5. O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Yeah. So what other portion out there would I rather have? Out of all the portions, would I rather have more money? Would I rather that be my portion? Would I rather have a bigger house? Maybe a better career. Maybe I'd rather have a longer, healthier life. What portion am I looking for? One of the things that we have to understand is that if all I get is Jesus Christ, He's enough. He is my portion, right? He is the greatest gift of all. That's the portion that I should want the most. David's describing the difference here between those who have already chased after other gods 
and those who have put their trust in the Lord. Okay, so the idol chasers, what do they end up with? Multiplied sorrows. Sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. That's verse 4. What do Christ followers end up with? Verse 5, an inheritance. They receive an inheritance. Believer, your portion is Christ. Your portion is Christ. He is your inheritance. And your cup is a cup of blessing. Why? Because he took your cup of wrath. That's why. Christ took your cup of wrath and offers you himself as a cup of blessing. Christ is your portion. How beautiful. Christ is your lot, right? By grace through faith, if you belong to Christ, he is your portion. He is your lot. You don't have to work for it. It's been given to you. It's free. That costs Christ everything, but it costs you nothing. And here's a bonus for you. This gift that God has given you through Christ, his son, he will maintain it. He will maintain your lot. So here's the deal. You don't have to work yourself to death to try to get ahead in this life. Don't do that. Work as unto the Lord. Yes, Colossians 3.23. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you. Yeah, absolutely. But don't work yourself to death looking for another portion out there. Christ is sufficient. He is your portion and he will maintain your lot. Again, live faithful, but also live free in Christ. Don't be bound by what the world tells you to go after looking for happiness. We don't live with those rules. Verse 6. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance, right? So David expresses here his contentment with what God has given him. I'm happy, Lord, with all that you've given me, right? The lines that have fallen to me are in pleasant places. In other words, this is not happenstance. This isn't chance right here. The, 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 where David finds himself, it's not happenstance. They are God-given and they are God-maintained and they are good. David says, I have a good inheritance. Amen. That tells us that our God is good and so are his gifts. This inheritance that I have, it's from my heavenly father and it far exceeds any inheritance that I could ever, ever hope for or ever achieve on my own, ever. And so the truth of God's goodness and the hope of his inheritance here, I think that helps David to get through the day today, right? When things aren't working today, when things are off today, I still have an eternal inheritance out there I can look forward, forward to to help me through today, right? But now in verse seven, he sort of shifts gears a little bit and he begins to thank the Lord for his counsel and his instruction going forward. So again, it's not just hope for today. It's hope for every day, all throughout eternity. Verse seven, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons, right? So we know where the wicked get their counsel. We read that in the very first verse of Psalms. It's Psalm 1, verse 1. The wicked get their counsel from ungodly sinners. That's where they go for counsel. But David rightly takes his counsel from the Lord. And we talked about this last week. We talked about how Isaiah uh, mentioned Christ and he described him as wonderful counselor, right? So Christ is where we run to, to get all of our counsel. If we want good counsel, we've got to be careful where we get it. If we're not getting it from Christ, we can certainly know that it's flawed counsel because not all counsel is good. Not all advice is good. Not all news is real. Like we live in a world that's fake, right? With all of the AI stuff that's coming around, we can't even believe what we see anymore, much less what we hear. We need to go to Christ for our counsel. We can't even believe our own eyes half the time. 
because things aren't real. We need discernment, right? We need to become biblically literate. We need to become students of the scriptures. And then that way we can test everything against the Bible to see whether or not it's true. Once we become a student of scripture, now we have a foundation. Now we have counsel. Now we have truth. We can compare what we see and hear to it to see whether or not it's true. That's Acts 17, 11. But I want you to see something here too. David doesn't just listen to God. He actually takes what God says to heart. Big difference. What this means is that David took the counsel that he received from God and he applied it to his life. Okay, so this is a very practical aspect of becoming a student of Scripture, becoming a Bible student, if you will. It's the idea of learning to apply the truth that you read. This is why we teach the way we teach. This is why we have our community groups the way that we do. We, we look at the context, right? What is the context of what we just read? What's some of that truth within that context? And now from there, how does this apply to my life? That's the practical aspect of studying the Scriptures, and I think it's important that we understand this, right? The, the word of God is not here to simply increase my head knowledge. No, it's actually to be taken to heart so that I can live it out practically in my daily life. Listen to Psalm 119.11. Your word I have hidden in my heart. That's right. It's not about head knowledge. It's about heart knowledge. Your word, Lord, I've done something with it. Just like I've put my faith in the Lord, I've taken your word and put it somewhere in my heart. Why? Well, so I can feel all warm and cozy inside. Maybe so I can win the next Bible trivia at the next church Christmas party. Why would I do that? Well, the Bible says it's so that I might not sin against you. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every time we get into this book, every time we read the word of God and we take it in, we're putting spiritual tools in our spiritual toolbox so that we can use in those times of temptation and trouble that are sure to come. We'll have something in there that we can draw upon, some truth, some counsel that we can use. God's counsel and his instruction, when it's taken to heart, it will affect the way we live. It will affect how we make decisions. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. And it's going to help us through the most difficult times in our life. So when David says, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons, that's a difficulty. When he goes through a, a tough spot, when he has trouble in his life, he's counting on the word of God to get him through that. Right. He's gleaning from the truth of God's word that has already been hidden in his heart. So if I want help, if I need help during the night seasons of my own life, then what, what's got to happen? I've got to get God's word from here to here, off the page and into my heart. I've got to get God's word into me. I've got to hide it in my heart so that I will not sin against him, so that it will guide me and instruct me during those times when I need it most. Verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. So here again is another conscious decision on the part of David to put the Lord somewhere first, right? First, I have set the Lord, he says, always where? Before me, before me. Notice there's never a time when the Lord is out of reach. There's never a time when he's unavailable if he's always before you. David says, I've set him always before me. Many Christians today, they only want God to be there when they need him, right? Don't call me God, I'll call you. If I get in a bind, I'll hit you up and then you can get me out of the bind. And then I'll just go back to doing whatever I was doing before. 
That's not David's desire. David said, God is always with me, which is to mean in every area of my life, every single area. As believers, we should want God to invade every dark corner of our heart, every single dark corner of our heart and clean out every sinful secret that finds its home there. That should be our desire. If I want to live a life that's pleasing to God, then I need God to be with me always, don't I? Always. Not only that, David says, I've set the Lord always before me. So someplace in particular. Many of you remember, I don't know about many. You guys are a pretty young crowd. Back in my day, we had what they called bumper stickers. Stickers that actually went on the bumper, not the window. I think we call them window stickers today. But on these bumper stickers, it became pretty uh, uh, common, I guess, in some Christian circles to have one that said, Jesus is my (laughs) co-pilot. That was a knee slapper for me. I mean, I thought that was just hideous. Christ has never been anyone's co-pilot, ever. Who is he? He's the pilot. He's the pilot, right? We've got to get out of this mindset that Christ is just there when we need him. We'll go to him in a time of trouble. The rest of our life, we'll live on our own. Thank you very much. We've got to get out of this mindset and understand that Christ is actually my Lord. He's my boss. I don't take him with me where I go. I go where he sends me and I do what he tells me to do, right? He is my boss. And so we've got to get away from all of these churchy sounding catchphrases like Jesus is my co-pilot or God helps those who helps themselves. I mean, we could go on for days, right? No, that's not Bible. The Bible says, set the Lord always before you. In other words, never take your eyes off of Jesus. Our relationship with Christ should come before everything in our life. It should come before every other relationship in our life. Our obedience to God is dependent upon always keeping Christ before me. If Christ is always with me, that means he is before me. I am always looking to him, right? And that will affect my decisions. It will affect my obedience. It's whenever I take my eyes off of Christ, who is before me, that he's not always with me. And now I'm running off into the woods somewhere and I'll get myself in trouble 10 times out of 10 when I do that. Of course, only Jesus lived his life perfectly this way. We know that. But this is where we begin to see this prophetic element of this psalm come into play, right? Verse 8 described the life of Christ prophetically, right? Which is to be an example for all of us, right? Christ is our example of how to live. But David says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, what does that mean? To be at somebody's right hand does not mean co-pilot, Right? That does not mean that. What does it mean? It means to be in a position of power. It means to be in a position of authority. Right. Therefore, with Christ at our right hand, we have security. We have stability. In other words, we will not be moved if Christ is in power and authority over our life. So as believers, Christ is not only before me. He is also over me. He is over me in power and authority. And I mean, with that kind of protection, Think about that. With that kind of assurance and security, what in the world do we have to worry about as followers of Christ? Why would we ever be anxious? But now as this relates to Christ personally, himself, Christ had the perfect strength of his Father, which allowed him to accomplish the Father's will perfectly without ever being moved off course by the enemy ever. 
Christ drew upon the strength of his father during his earthly ministry. And so how this applies to us is that when we set the Lord as priority number one in our life, then what does he do? He resides at our right hand, okay, in complete power, in complete authority over our life, providing you and providing me with complete and perfect strength as well. Perfect protection. I I love that because that's the kind of life that he wants for you to have. That's the kind of life that he wants his children to enjoy full time in the presence of God at all times, unable to be moved. That sounds like a pretty good life to me. Verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. So here we see some of the benefits of Christ being first in our life. This commitment, it results in at least two things here, according to verse nine. One, a heart that's glad and two, glorious rejoicing. I love that. Now, again, what was the result of all of those who hastened after other gods? Verse 4. What was that result? Multiplied sorrows, right? Sorrow upon sorrow. But that's not the case for the believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Our heart will rejoice. Our heart will be glad, not sorrowful. I love that. David says something else very important. My flesh will also rest in hope. So we've learned that Those who are in Christ are going to rest in the night seasons of their life, verse 7. So the troubles that come, we will have hope and and rest through that. But also, according to David here in verse 9, we will also rest in death with eternal hope. I love that. But the decision to follow Christ and put him number one in my life, I need to understand something very clearly. It will cost me something. There is a cost to this, right? Jesus himself said, count the cost before following me. So there's a cost to following Christ. As as Pastor Guzik points out, he says, it might cost me certain pleasures, very possibly. If I'm going all in with Jesus, he might ask me to do some things that I wouldn't normally do in regard to, quote, pleasure. It might cost me certain pleasures. It might cost me popularity. Very true. It might cost me anonymity. That's right. We've talked about this biblical idea of gathering together as the family of God. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians out there. We are a family of God. So I might be an introvert, and I am, but Christianity is costing me my anonymity. I don't get to do this alone. I get to do it with you guys. That's also part of what makes my heart glad. Guzik goes on to say, it might cost me family relationships. Very true. I know people, you might know some people too, who have lost family relationships over their relationship with Christ. Following Christ might cost me my life goals, very possibly. It might cost me my career choices, my financial priorities, and on and on. We could go on and on here. But if we are to sort of run a cost-benefit analysis on following Christ, here's what we find in verse 9. The benefits far outweigh the cost. The benefits of following Christ far outweigh the cost. I mean, I would much rather have a glad, rejoicing heart that rests in hope eternally than any of those temporary pleasures that I can find on my own in this world, wouldn't you? I know I would. Here's the truth. The only hope for a dying person is Jesus Christ. That's it. Here's something else. We're all going to die. We're all staring the grave in the face. And the only hope any of us can have eternally is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Christ had not raised from the dead, then none of us would have any hope. But he did. He did raise from the dead. 
And he is alive today forevermore. And because of that, those of us who have put our trust in him, we can now lay down peacefully. We can now lay down with joy in our heart because we rest in hope. We rest in the hope of Jesus Christ because he did raise from the grave. That means I will also one day raise from the grave. Death is not the end for the believer in Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. Our flesh will rest in hope, just like David says here. And so as we begin to think prophetically about verse 9, that speaks to the death of Christ. Verse 8 prophetically speaks to the life of Christ. And again, verse 9, to his death. And so again, I think we should get great hope. That's my point. We should get great hope because if Christ is our Redeemer, then we're able to rest in him eternally, today and every day, right? He rested, therefore we can rest in him. This speaks to the body, bodily resurrection of Christ and the believer. This is very prophetic in regard to resurrection itself. Look at verse 10. For you will not leave my, my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So David's soul, think about this, David's soul was so settled in God that he actually believed that God would not leave his soul in the grave. That's what David believed. David said, you're not going to leave my soul in the grave. Sheol means grave, literally place of the dead. So David said, I believe this resur- I believe in resurrection. I believe in life after death. You're not going to leave my soul there. I love that. David believed in the resurrection of the dead in the presence of God. Now today, of course, we have a clearer picture of what all that looks like because of the New Testament revelation that we've been given. But David expresses the truth of eternal life the best way he knows how to do that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the time. But resurrection is all throughout the Bible. Think about Abraham. He expressed this kind of faith in regard to his son Isaac. Remember that? He said, we'll go and we will return. Plural. Plural. Me and the boy, he's saying, we'll return. That means he thought that God would raise him from the dead. He was professing resurrection. You can read about this in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. But Abraham believed that he would raise Isaac up from the dead. And so the hope of every believer is and has always been life beyond the grave. Resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. David said, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, Whether David knew at the time he was prophesying about Christ, I don't know. But this was actually and literally fulfilled in the life of Christ right here as we read it in Scripture. This was fulfilled in the life of Christ. And we're going to see when we continue our study in the book of Acts, Peter points this out in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31. Jesus was the holy one here that David is writing about. Because he was the only one without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And so Christ's body never actually seen any corruption because death had no hold on him. That's Acts 2.24. And so this does speak very specifically to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, was the Father's stamp of approval on the crucifixion of Christ. He's saying, your sacrifice has been accepted, right? The punishment that you took the wrath that you bore for the sins of the world, I accept now as payment for sins of the world by raising you from the dead. It's the Father's stamp of approval. The resurrection says, yeah, it is finished. It's over. The sin of the world has been paid for through the blood of Christ, my son, at his cross. I want you to think about something. We're about to wrap up here pretty soon, so stay with me. 
Go home sometime today and reread Psalm 16 and think about Christ on the cross. Think about what he must have been going through while he hung there on that cross. I wonder personally, I can't prove this biblically, so I'm not saying it's, it's biblical. I'm just saying I wonder. I wonder if Christ prayed through this entire psalm while he was on the cross. I don't know. I don't know. Think about it, though. I'm going to briefly go over it again in light of Christ on the cross. Think about it in this light. Think about Christ on his cross as he put his complete trust in the Father, knowing that he will preserve him. That's verse 1. Settling his soul on the fact that God is good and that he belongs to him. That's verse 2. Knowing that he's sacrificing his own life for those very people that the Father calls saints or considers them to be excellent ones in whom is all his delight. That's verse 3. And he's praying for those who have hastened after another God, verse 4. And he's looking forward to his portion in glory with the Father while accepting the cup of wrath, which was his lot in his life, verse 5. Being fully obedient to the Father's will. That was the line that had fallen to him. And he trusted in his inheritance that was to come, verse 6. And he had his heart instructed by the counsel of his father in this very, very difficult night season of wrath and pain and torture and struggle against the enemy of our souls and our sin. That's verse 7. But nonetheless, he always set his father before him, knowing that he is at his right hand and he shall not be moved, verse 8. Therefore, he faced death with a heart that is glad and rejoicing in the fact that his flesh will rest in hope, verse 9, because his father will not leave him. His father will not allow his flesh to see corruption because of the promise that he will rise again, verse 10. Imagine Christ thinking through, maybe even praying through this psalm while he's on the cross. Can you believe all that Christ has gone through in order to secure our eternity in Christ. He's done it all. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If you've ever been to our house, this is the Scripture that's written on the bench that sits on the front porch. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Amen. I love that scripture. Because Christ lives. Now I can live eternally in him. Christian, your future is absolutely full of hope. I hope you understand that this morning. Verse 11, and we're done. We won't be long. He says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. So again, take heart, believer, and follower of Christ this morning. Jesus Christ will show you the way to where he is. Where is he? He's in heaven. And we are going to where he is. And he's promised to get us there. He will maintain our lot. But David... I really believe understood the true meaning of life here because he says in your presence is fullness of joy. Most of us get that wrong. We'll say things like, oh, but down at the bar is where I find my joy or, you know, whatever else that I'm into is where I'll find my joy. They don't understand the true meaning of life. David did. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And this joy can be found today. 
Christ said, I've come that you may have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So this joy can be experienced today and every day all the way into eternity, but it can only be experienced in the presence of God. That's it. Outside of the presence of God, there is no joy. You might find temporary happiness, of course, but you will never find true lasting joy. And I think this is why we should set the Lord always before us, verse 8, and live in his presence each and every day of our life where that fullness of joy resides. That's where we need to be, right? Guys, nobody else, no one else, or nothing else can ever make you this promise. Nothing else can tell you that your joy can be full if you just do this or that. No, you might have happiness, but you will not experience joy. You might think you have joy until you get to eternity. Only Christ can give you the fullness of joy eternally. And that can only happen in the presence of God. David then says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love this part. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he ascended to where? The right hand of the father. That's John chapter 3, verse 13. And so what we see here in verse 11, think about it. What we see here prophetically speaks to the ascension of Christ. David said, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, who is at God's right hand? Jesus. That's where Jesus is, right? Amen. So the fullness of joy, eternal pleasure, all of that that David speaks of here can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's it. So I can stop looking around now. I don't have to go exploring anymore. I know where it is. I just need to go there. I need to run to Christ. I need to put my trust in the Lord because he will preserve me. That way I can rest in hope. And now I can live the rest of my life in freedom. I can live the rest of my life for eternity, for something that actually matters, right? Because I'm going to forever be in the presence of God. That's the promise we see in this psalm. So what's the application? I don't know what that is for you, but here's something for you to be thinking about. What's 2024 going to look like for me? I said this morning, we've turned the page. We're going to turn the page on a new year. Maybe it's time to turn the page in your walk with Christ. What is that going to look like? You see, because the truth is we don't need another new year's resolution. Okay. If you have one of those hanging on your fridge already, you might as well just take it down, throw it in the trash. Okay, because five minutes after New Year's, it's all going to be, you know, worthless anyway, right? We don't need another New Year's resolution. What we need is resolve in our heart to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that pleases him. So in 2024, will I put my faith in Christ? Will I begin a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? In 2024, will I walk with him every day knowing that my future is secure in him? Is that something that I can look forward to this year? Will I prioritize my relationship with Christ and stop chasing after other worthless, meaningless idols, including myself, including my own will? This next year, am I going to gather more with my church family? Will I make that a priority to be at church, to be where the church is, and then to go out into the community and be the church? Will I begin to use my gifts and my talents for the glory of Christ right here in this body? Is that something I'm going to do this year? As Tim Keller said, am I going to seek the gifts of Christ's hand more than the glory of his face? What he said here is basically, will I serve Christ for what he can give me or for who he is? That's a good question. Why am I serving Jesus? He's worthy if he never gives me one thing. Christ is worthy of my worship. 
and 2024 will I settle the truth of salvation in my soul like David does here will I get that settled to the point that I'll have resolve in my heart to begin living for him every single day no looking back for the rest of my life will I seek the fullness of joy that can only be found in his presence will I do that Will I rest in Christ today and every day, knowing that he alone is my hope for the future? I hope so. I hope that you can say that. I want to be able to say that. But it's not a resolution that we make. It's resolve that we have to put in our heart. Am I going to resolve to do these things? Because I have such a great hope in Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you for letting us gather here in your presence, where we have just learned we can experience the fullness of joy. Lord, we don't want to be outside of your presence. We want the Lord always before us, always before us, guiding us, leading us, directing us, giving us discernment, helping us through the night seasons. But Lord, we want to resolve in our heart this morning to not go anywhere else and and leave you when we have a good day. When things are going good, we still need you. So, Lord, help us to resolve in our heart this morning to keep the Lord always before us. To put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, not looking around anywhere else for our satisfaction, not anymore. Those days are over. Going forward, Lord, we want to trust in You alone. We want to live for You and live for You alone because that's where our hope is. That's where our future is. You are our portion You will maintain our lot. You will see us through to eternity. What you have started in us, the work you began, salvation, you will complete. So help us to understand grace and live in light of that because we have been given so much. We should live out of love for you. It's not a license to sin. It's a license to love and live free and live in obedience to the scriptures, to your word, to your will. Help us to understand these things, Lord, deeper this year than ever before. Please bless your church. We've just read that they are the saints. They are the excellent ones in whom is all your delight. I don't quite understand how you can delight in someone like me at all. But you do. You have called us your own. And we thank you for that, Lord. So help us to walk in light of that protection that we have, in light of the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus as our Lord forever. Help us to be the church that you call us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.